You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. We're going to be wrapping up our series today on uh, <clears throat> on the local church for the last seven weeks now. Uh, we've been talking about uh, what it means to be the church, what it means to be God's people, and what it means to be on mission. Um, and uh, and today we come to uh, to the last uh, message that takes us, I think, really to to the heart of what it means to understand the mission of God and to understand the mission of God is to understand the mission of the church. And, and one of the reasons that we've taken time to really think about the church and the, the significance of the local church uh, is because this really is God's plan A for what he's doing in the world to advance his name among the nations. Uh, he's, he's intended for his church to be the display of his glory and his wisdom. Ephesians uh, chapter 3, 20, 10 says, uh, to the world. Uh, God's uh, work that he accomplished in Christ, uh, he intends to make known through the church in the nation, among the nations. He's intending to use us uh, in the body of Christ to make us personally uh, more and more like him and then in turn to use us personally to build up corporately the body of Christ. Uh, we, we've seen how we're responsible for one another. We, we have this commitment to one another in the body of Christ to help one another grow in holiness, to, to help each other pursue Christ together. We've, we've seen the importance of sin and how the church can't just uh, gloss over or tolerate sin, but we must uh, formatively in our everyday life seek to pursue Christ together that we may grow more like him. But then even in a corrective and re- restorative way, we at times have to address unrepentant sin in our midst. And we do all of that uh, to be a healthy church is what enables our mission uh, to to be grounded uh, in a a biblical sense and and in a faithful sense to God's word. But if we just build a healthy church without a a forward-looking mission, uh, then eventually uh, we we are just putting in, putting in without ever releasing out. I don't know if you've ever been to the Dead Sea. This is an analogy that's often used or or any salt-rich kind of body of water. You can't sink in the water. You just float because all it's doing is taking in. There's no outlet for the sediment to, to get out and for the uh, salt-like uh, aspects of it to get out. So all it does is take in and take in, and it basically only becomes good for tourists who believe that if you put the mud on your skin, it will do something for you. Uh, but that's about all is good. That's all it's good for. It's actually not good to drink. It's not enjoyable to swim in, except for like the first few moments, and then you start splashing around, and then you splash yourself in the eyes, and then you hate yourself for the rest of the day because your eyes are burning. Uh, it, it becomes useless. And if a church is just focused on becoming healthy, looking at how to do ministry and looking at holiness and all of these things without an emphasis on mission, then we become stagnant and inward. But if all we do as a church is seek to become mission-oriented, outward-focused, and we'll worry about the other stuff later, then what we reach people with and win people to won't actually keep them very long and won't equip them to follow Christ. And so we have to be a a healthy church, and and along with being a healthy church is being a missional church. But to to be on mission means that we have to understand what the church is, what it means, 
uh, for us to be the body of Christ, what God intends for the church to look like, how God intends for the church to be structured, and how God intends for us to pursue our mission. And so uh, today we come uh, to the mission of the church and we come to Jesus's last words. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that last words are lasting words. Uh, last words are lasting words. It's somewhat of an interesting statement. I think last words maybe are lasting in the sense that they're, uh, they're at least interesting. Specifically, the more, um, the more popular a person is, you want to kind of know what their last words are, right? Um, but I, I kind of recorded some, uh, uh, some last words of some famous individuals. Uh, as I did the research on this, I have to be honest, <clears throat> just because you look it up online doesn't mean it's true, you know, sort of thing. I don't know if you figured that out in life. Um, but uh, I, I've used the ones that I think are largely true uh, from what I can tell looking at resources. So if you're like, Michael said, this is what, you know, this person said. And I looked it up and it says this. Come tell me. I'll correct it in the footnote later on, you know. Um, but I think this, these are the last words of these folks. Uh, Machiavelli, who's a Florentine diplomat and political philosopher in the 1500s, uh, he had an interesting take as he entered uh, the, the last moments of his life. He said to a companion, I desire to go to hell and not to heaven. In the former, I will enjoy the company of popes, kings, and princes, while in the latter, only beggars, monks, and apostles. Um, Karl Marx uh, who led an uh, interesting life, to say the least, and uh, commonly associated with what we consider communism. Grew up in a somewhat of an eclectic religious family, but uh, by and large had denounced all um, sense of religion and, and was atheistic. And on his deathbed, um, screamed. his nurse asked him if he had any last words. And he said to his nurse, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Uh, so those are his last words. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorites, again, I don't know if this is fully true, but multiple sources uh, said it. Al Capone said, you can get more with a kind word and a gun than you can get with a kind word alone. Um, that seems largely uh, true. I, you know, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> John Newton, who's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace and a number of other um, hymns and, um, and uh, a believer who the Lord used in many ways, uh, his, his dying words at the end were, I'm still in the land of the dying and I'll soon be in the land of the living. I'm in the land of the dying, he said, but I will soon be in the land of the living. Bob Marley, at the end of his life, he said, money can't buy life. Money can't buy life. Those are good, uh, a, a, a good maxim, to say the least. Winston Churchill, I found this most fascinating, who lived himself an extraordinary life and uh, was pivotal in... Uh, and, and really sparing the world from uh, the horrors, uh, uh, any worse horrors than World War II. Um, towards the end of his life, his last words supposedly were, before slipping into a nine-day coma, which would ultimately lead to his death, I'm bored with it all. I'm bored with it all. Um, they say boredom can't kill you, uh, but uh, for Winston Churchill, uh, he was bored at the end. Uh, these last words, I, the reason I, I question whether lasting words are always, last words are always lasting words, because when I hear these things, I think, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, like some of them are good thoughts. Some of them kind of let you into a little bit of perhaps their thinking on things. Um, but, but none of these statements are the kind of statements that you're going to build your life on, right? I mean, it's true, uh, you know, that money can't buy life. That's a good, good thing to remember, right? Like you, you can't just... You're not the sum total of your possessions. You know, that's, that's good to remember. It, it's good to remember that you might want to not only talk softly but carry a big stick, you know, in life. It's good to have uh, maybe some principle there. 
It may be good to think that you should get out all your words and not save any of, the, any of them to the end. Or, uh, or maybe, uh, maybe, maybe you, you look at John Newton and you say, wow, what a, what a thought. Here, is, here he is dying. He's saying, I'm soon going to be living. You know, like how, how do we understand how death isn't actually dying? How do, how do you get to a, uh, an understanding and to a place where death isn't the end, but it's actually the beginning of what God's promised? That's actually what the gospel tells us. So maybe there's something in his words that, that help us think about lasting words. But, but really, these words are just interesting, if they're true, right? Um, but Jesus's last words truly are lasting words, and they're the kind of words that we can build our life on. And in fact, they're what we build the mission of the church on. Jesus' last words uh, come to us in what are known as these commissioning texts that uh, occur at at the end of all the Gospels. Uh, And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, is what's known as the Great Commission. Uh, The Great Commission, as I said, it really is what we build our life on as believers. It really is the foundation of who we are as a church. It gives us our marching orders as believers and as a body of Christ. And Jesus' words weren't the last words of a dying man. You remember the the last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. And and he gave up his spirit and he breathed his last. He accomplished our salvation through his death on the cross. Those are the last words of Jesus dying on the cross. But these are the last words of a risen and a living Savior who is commissioning his church giving them the directive for how they were to live their lives and what they were to do as they await his return. You see, Jesus' final words really ought to be our first priority as a church. Jesus' final words ought to be our first priority as a church. The, The commission that Jesus gives to his first disciples here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it really is the enduring mission for all of Jesus's disciples. Uh, the, 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 the great commission uh, that Jesus gives to his first disciples becomes the enduring mission that, uh, that, that, that shapes and defines all of us as followers of Christ and every church as a follower of Christ. There's a lot of mission statements that, uh, that churches have. And I think in many ways, a mission statement for a church should come down to fundamentally what Jesus calls us to here in Matthew 28. 18 through 20, a desire to make disciples, to help people know Christ and follow Christ, to help people be equipped to help others know and follow Christ. And at TCC, we say our mission is to glorify God by multiplying disciples who together delight in, declare and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. We want to be a church that makes disciples, that multiplies disciples. And that comes right here from Jesus' words in Matthew 28. And I want us to see four things from, from what Jesus says here in Matthew 28. And the first starts in verses 16 through 17. I want us to see that our mission is the overflow of worship. Mission is the overflow of worship. You see, Jesus had told, he had appeared, uh, it tells us in Matthew, to a number of the women disciples and had told them to go ahead and to tell the 12 uh, or the 11 now that Judas has, uh, has died to go ahead of him to Galilee and there they would see him. And so they go and tell them in the 11, it says in verse 16, travel to Galilee just as it was told them by Jesus to a mountain there. And it says, then they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You see, Matthew, as, as a gospel, is written to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew begins with the birth narrative of Jesus 
um, being born and John the Baptist. And uh, in those first two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, it's full of Old Testament citations because they're showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and of the prophecies. He's the, the one promise to the offspring of Abraham and to David. He's the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. He's the, the king who will reign forever according to the line of David. And he fulfills all of these promises and we get a glimpse of it. He's going to do it, Matthew 1 tells us, through dying for our sins. He is the Savior who's come to die for our sins. The, the blessing of Abraham, the rule uh, of God that he promised to David comes to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and then through his resurrection from the dead. And, and it's this risen Christ who now meets the disciples. They had heard about him and, and had understood who he was. And even though they struggled at times to fully make sense of it all and how Jesus' plan matched with their expectation of God's kingdom, here they are at the end and they, they are beholding the risen Christ, the promised Messiah, their whole life was turned upside down when, when he died because they, they, though he was telling them it, they thought, man, this might be the end of it. If they can kill Jesus, the Romans, that is, they can kill us. So they're hiding and afraid. It's only when they see the resurrected Christ that they're bold enough to, to go out uh, and, to, and to continue to do the work that God had called them to do. And here they go to Galilee and they meet him. And notice how they respond to the risen Christ. It says in verse, eight, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. They worshiped, but some doubted. The, the, the response to Christ, uh, the risen Christ, is no doubt to worship him, to, to receive him for who he is as the promised Messiah, the long-awaited one who's come to deliver us from our sins. When you, when you have eyes to see Jesus and you think about him, you can, you can be assured that God is at work in your heart, that when you think about Christ, your heart's drawn to worship. Because that's the right response to who Jesus is. He, he, call, he compels us to worship him. Because if he really did come as the promised one and really did die a sacrificial death and rise victoriously from the dead, then that means he is who he said he was. It means the promises of God is, are true. It means that God has actually come to dwell among us. It means that, that, that when God says that we have a problem, but there's a solution and there's a hope beyond this life, that, that the, the thought of what Jesus says in John, that it is not death to die, that those who die will live forever, and, and there's this sense of hope for eternity. All of these things are true in Jesus, so how can we not worship him? But, but I love the honesty of the scriptures because it says, but some doubted, which is an interesting word here, because it's used another time in Matthew 14, 31. You guys might be familiar with the story. It's when Jesus appears to the disciples and is walking on the water and Peter tries to walk to him. And when Peter starts to walk to him, his focus shifts somehow and he takes his eyes off Jesus and, and, it, uh, and he begins to sink before Jesus picks him up and grabs him. And then Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Most commentators say that the, the word here is more akin to hesitation. Uh, the idea that there was this worship, but this hesitation uh, in the disciples as they were encountering the risen Christ. Uh, it's... It's somewhat good for us to remember when you think about what it means to behold the glory of God. When most people behold God in his glory here, no doubt, somewhat of a muted uh, sense of God's glory after the resurrection. But, but most people aren't like, hey, what's up, Jesus? There's this great sense of awe that comes upon those who behold the glory of God. And here uh, there's, I think, a sense perhaps of, of hesitation 
with, with an uncertainty of what it really means that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, what? <laughs> he really got up from the grave like he's alive? And, and they're beginning to make sense of what he said all along, you know, like, I'm encouraged by the disciples sometimes because that means that there's hope for me and there's hope for some of you, right? Like because Jesus is telling them stuff and they're hearing it, but then it happens and they're like, well, wait a second, I didn't understand. And, and you like look back and you're like, no, Jesus literally told you what was going to happen. And, and like you didn't get it. Um, and I think it's in there to encourage us that some of us are about as stubborn and uh, as, as the Apostle Peter and uh, as unsure as some of the disciples. But God intends to use us, even those who hesitate and who worship as they're unsure of what it means. Perhaps they hesitated because they knew the cost of following Jesus. I mentioned earlier that the disciples following Jesus being uh, handed over and, and crucified, they were scared. They hid. Because they knew if it could happen to Jesus, it could happen to them. Perhaps they hesitated because they knew the cost of following Jesus. And yet in the midst of this hesitation, it says that they worshiped. It's the same thing that happened when Jesus appeared to his, uh, the, the women disciples in, in verse 9 of Matthew 28. It says that they fell down and they grabbed his feet and they worshiped. See, that's the, that's the response that we, we ought to have as we worship. And this is why we, we, we include in our mission statement a sense of what it means to make disciples begins with delight. It begins with worship. To, to truly be a part of God's mission means that we first have to see him as worthy. We first have to deem that he is worthy of our praise, worthy of our life, worthy of our inconvenience, worthy of sacrifice. To, to follow Christ in mission is to say, I treasure you. I delight in you. John Piper said, you can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. We can't commend what we don't cherish. We can't proclaim what we don't prize. We're, we aren't, hear, hear me and understand me, we are not recruiting people to team Jesus. We are inviting people to worship with us the one who is worthy of all praise and glory. It's not about, hey, come to Team Jesus. We're not recruiters. We're ambassadors bearing witness to the one who's worthy. That's what Jesus invites us into. That's why our mission overflows out of worship. Because this isn't just us saying, man, we got a good plan. We think we can execute it. We're saying, no, there's a, there's a Savior who's risen, who's worthy of our praise. And we want our life to be about Him. If our mission isn't an overflow of worship, it will become a weary, we will become weary and we will become heavy. Uh, we will become burdened by the requirements and the sacrifices and the responsibility of carrying out that mission. But when our mission is an overflow of worship, it's actually what, what fuels us. It's what puts winds in our sails to help us to be faithful in the task of making much of Christ and making disciples. So what are you cherishing these days? What are you prizing most in your life? As a church, I have to ask myself this. What, what do we cherish as a church? What do we prize as a church? It, it's, it's easy uh, for us to be temporarily distracted by lesser things and to take our eyes off 
Christ and to allow Christ to be uh, the priority of our life around which we build everything else. That's the invitation that Christ gives us to follow him, to make him the center of our life, for us to cherish him above all, to prize him above all. And it's out of the overflow of our worship that our mission uh, comes forth. The second thing I want us to see is that our mission is grounded in the authority of Christ. Jesus, after appearing to them, they see him, they worship. Uh, It says that he came near and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, the, the basis of our mission, why we do what we do, is really grounded in this fact that Jesus has universal authority over all things and all people. Jesus has authority over all things and all people. Another way to say this, if you could, if you think about it this way, what, what we believe the Bible is teaching about Jesus is that Jesus owns it all. Jesus is in control of all things. He rules over everything. All of everything belongs to him. There is nothing that is that doesn't belong to him. He rules. He reigns. He is sovereign over all. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And, and then it's from that, if you notice in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 19, it start, it, there's this therefore, go therefore and make disciples. The implication of Jesus' authority, the, 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 the kind of outworking of the fact that Jesus has all authority is that we have this mission, that we are to make disciples. In fact, Paul says it this way in regards to Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has a universal authority. Not all recognize his authority today. Paul says in Philippians 2, the day is coming when all will recognize the authority of Jesus, either in, uh, in humble worship uh, and, and exaltation or in a sense of judgment when we rightly recognize him as the one who has all authority. And it's, it's on the basis of Jesus' authority that our mission exists. I mean, you think about, think about what Christians believe. Christians believe that there is an exclusive gospel. There is an exclusive message that it's through Christ that salvation is possible. And only through Christ. That the only way we can, we can have eternal life, the only way we can have forgiveness of sins is through turning from our way and putting our trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who rose from the dead and who is coming again. That's our message. And what gives you and me the audacity to believe that we can go about telling people about this exclusive message. You think about that? I think sometimes as Christians we get a little overwhelmed uh, in, in a culture that is cool with, anyone can commend what they want to commend, but don't proselytize me. Don't try to tell me what to believe, right? Like there's, there's a sense in which that's the spirit of our age, and it's always been that way. You know, sometimes we fancy ourselves that we're different than times past, but the truth is, for all of human history, nobody has wanted to be told what to believe and to do, right? Like nobody, don't tread on me. That's what we said back in the revolution. A bit further back, we were like, hey, let me be me, right? Let me do me. And there's this sense in all of us, all the way back to Genesis 3, that we say, hey, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And as long as your way doesn't impede my way, I'm cool with your way. But God's message impedes our way. It, it steps on our toes. It challenges us. And as Christians, we can be sometimes overwhelmed in the spirit of our age to speak boldly of Christ. But we must remember that our mission 
is grounded in the authority of Christ. We can be so bold to hold out this exclusive message, not because we think we figured it out. No, the the heart of, of a Christian telling another person about this exclusive message of the gospel isn't one that looks down the bridge of their nose lower upon people, but is one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. Like that's the heart of the, of the believer in seeking to commend Christ is to say, look, I, I, am, I am a wretched sinner. Apart from Christ, I, I would have nothing to offer. I, I'm here to tell you not what I've figured out, but what God says, and I want you to know it too. And it's on that authority that we speak as followers of Christ. It's on the authority of Christ that there is a sense of necessity to our mission. He has all authority in heaven on earth. Therefore, Follow the implications. If he has all authority, then we must be about his work. The necessity of our mission flows from the authority of Christ. We are not here commending our church growth strategy. We are not here commending what we think is the best possible way to win people and make friends. We are seeking as followers of Christ to bear witness to Jesus who died who rose, who is coming again. We're saying that he is the one who is worthy. He is the one who has all authority. He is the one who, though he is worthy and has all authority, came and took on the position of a servant. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though he could have made us bend the knee. Instead, he woos us by his love. And invites us to bow our hearts and to receive him. And to all who receive him, he gives the right to be called children of God. To all who call upon his name, he says that I will never turn them away. They will never be put to shame. To all who call on him, they will be saved. And it's on the basis of his authority that our mission exists. And then third, I want us to see that our mission most fundamentally is to make disciples. Our mission is to make disciples. Now, when we think about what it, what it means to make disciples, I want to kind of take a step back and, and lay kind of a foundation here of what is a disciple and what does it mean to make disciples, okay? So when you think about the word Christian uh, in the Bible, it's only used a few times. There's uh, a, a place in Acts where it's at Antioch where believers are following Christ. They first come to be called Christians, little Christs, if you will, in the sense that they reflected Christ in their character and their life. But the, by and large, the most frequent word Uh, that's used for the follower of Jesus, for the Christian, if you will, is the word disciple. Christians use three times in, in in the Bible. In Acts 11, Acts 26, and 1 Peter 4, the word disciple is used 259 times. So it's an important word, right? Uh, it's important for us to understand what it means to be a disciple. Well, flip, flip to Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 8, if you will. I lied to you. I was right. Mark chapter 8, 34. We begin walking through the gospel of Mark next week uh, for uh, two months leading up into Christmas. We'll take a break for Advent and then pick up the new year 
uh, walking through the Gospel of Mark. So really looking forward to that. You can begin reading through it if you'd like uh, in preparation for us to do so. But um, that was a free advertisement. The point is Mark 8, verse 34 through 38. All right. Here, here is Jesus's uh, what we might call the great invitation. Jesus defines for us what it means to be a disciple. He tells everyone in the crowd, along with his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, the word disciple at its root is to, to be a follower, a follower of Jesus. It, and if we follow Jesus, it means based upon what he says here in verse 34 through 38, that, his, that our life gets centered around him. It's a denying of ourself. We're saying it's not my way any longer. It's not about me any longer. I'm not choosing my sin and, and, uh, and living according to my pleasures any longer. It's no longer about my comfort and my convenience. I'm dying to myself and I'm following Christ. I'm, I'm following Christ even at great cost to myself, taking up the cross in the pursuit of Christ. And this is the most confident invitation that Jesus gives in the disciples. Follow me. It's what he says to, to his 12. It's what he says to everyone who would come after him. Follow me. If anyone, who anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So to, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus and to center our life around him. And what do we get in return? We get life. Real life. We really live. It's, a, it's the kind of life that you can't exchange the whole world for. It's, it's not worth your own soul. It's eternal life. It's new life in Christ. And when we put this invitation to follow Jesus in Mark 8, 34 with Matthew 28, we get a picture of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus and who makes disciples. So to, to follow Jesus is the sense of, of, of knowing him um, uh, and, and loving him and then seeking to help others do the same. So a way I like to define what it means to be a disciple is a disciple is someone who follows Jesus and helps others do the same. According to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a disciple is a disciple maker. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all going to make disciples at the same rate in the same, um, same way, but we're all called to follow Jesus, which means knowing and loving him, and then help others do the same. As best as we can, we commend Christ and we come along others and we say, hey, follow Christ with me. In the kingdom of God, there are no solo disciples. In the kingdom of God, there can be no secret disciples. In the kingdom of God, we are called uh, to show the world what Jesus is like and help others know and follow him. Jesus intends for his message of the kingdom to go from, from this small group of believers that in Acts 1 in the upper room are about 120, he intends to take those, with the 12 being the foundational apostles, those 120 there in Acts 1, he intends that group of people, the foundation of the church, to take his message to all nations until he returns. The gospel doesn't get out unless those who follow Christ, those who bear his name, help others know how to follow him and know him and love him. So this is, this is how being a disciple and making disciples go hand in hand. 
Uh, and, and according to, uh, to what we see in Matthew 28, being a disciple means being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and learning to obey all that Jesus commands us, all that he teaches us. Uh, one, uh, one author, Pastor Carl Ellis, said, A disciple is a follower of Jesus in the process of learning to obey all things he commanded. I, I love that uh, encouragement, that reminder, that a disciple is a follower of Jesus who has not arrived, but who is in the process of learning to obey all that he commands. So as we think about this call to make disciples, I want us to think about what it means or what does it look like to make disciples briefly. Here we see three kind of uh, statements around the command. And in verses, verse 19 through 20, there's really one command. Um, and for all the... Uh, uh, all the English nerds, the others are participles, right? So the command is make disciples. Uh, and though the, some of them are translated like go is translated almost as a command, it, it, they all have a sense of, uh, of necessity or of an imperative. Like they all are almost commands in and of themselves, but they really describe how we make disciples. We make disciples as we go. We make disciples by baptizing believers. And we make disciples by teaching uh, one another to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So those three things, we go. Making disciples requires us to move towards people. And notice Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. Well, how will all nations come to know and follow Christ unless some of those who know and follow Christ go? How will our friends and our classmates and our co-workers and our family come to know Christ unless we move towards them? The, 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 the kind of logic of the Great Commission is that we have this call to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, we must go. The question isn't, are you, are you called to go somewhere? But the question is, where are you called to go? Where are you called to go? What does that look like? Into your work, into, into your family, into your neighborhood, into, into your class, into your dorm, into the, into the world, among the nations. How is God calling you and me to go is the question that we must ask. The scope of the Great Commission gives us this sense of urgency to go wherever people don't know Christ. To go to people who don't know Christ. And here nations is defined not in the sense of the 200 and whatever many nations there are, but is defined in the sense of people groups, of, of those who are known by their language, their culture, and their customs, and in which we go to the peoples that God has made, and we bear witness to the hope that's in Christ. This is why as a church we give through our Christmas missions offering every year to support the work of, of international missionaries through the International Mission Board. It's why we pray for and support uh, those from our own church who have gone to the nations like Kaylin O'Hearn. It's why we, we support the work of, of Bridges through uh, the ministry that Bryce has on campus at the U of M and around our community. It's why we seek to make the gospel the priority of what we do because we believe that all people everywhere need the hope of the gospel. And we want everyone, everywhere to know that hope. And the bottom line is, you think about this. Think about how the gospel got to you. Maybe it was at bedside as your mom or dad told you the gospel. Maybe it was a friend at school or after practice. Maybe it was someone from a church who came and knocked on your door or or maybe it was a by chance meeting with someone on campus or, uh, or a neighbor. Maybe you came to a church. Maybe you were listening to something on YouTube. Maybe you were reading your Bible. 
But no one comes to know Christ apart from someone moving towards them with the gospel. God intends for the gospel to be advanced through his people. He wants to use us. To make disciples, we must go. And we see to make disciples, we baptize. Baptism is how a follower of Jesus makes their profession of Christ public. Baptism, we believe, marks the conversion of the Christian and then our inclusion into the body of Christ, into the local church. And so we believe that when we, when we are baptized, we're saying we have placed our trust in Jesus. Now we profess that we identify with Christ through baptism. And, and it's a way in which we bear witness to Christ and say, I'm a child of God, a disciple of Christ. It puts on display the gospel uh, through this sense of we are buried with Christ uh, in the likeness of his death and we're raised to walk in the newness of life. Uh, is the picture of baptism. And Jesus commands us to, to, as we make disciples, that we baptize those who have professed faith in Christ. And then we teach them. We're continually learning as followers of Christ. We're continually centering our life upon um, foundational uh, disciplines like uh, reading God's word, like prayer, like community. And again, just to commend our equip class to you. As we talk about Christian formation, it's, it's foundational to Christian growth. These, these disciplines of, uh, of God's word and of prayer and of community and, and these other ways in which we allow, um, uh, we allow God to work and we, we pursue Christ through dis- submitting ourselves to him. And we, we are continually learning and immersing ourselves in God's word and investing ourselves in others. The Great Commission is calling us to be a church that focuses on evangelism and discipleship. So think about it this way. Evangelism is, is us sharing the gospel and inviting people to follow Christ. Discipleship, we talked about this a little bit last week. It's the process of growing as a follower of Christ in obedience to God's word um, and in community with other believers. Here's, uh, this is a very technical chart uh, that's made here. Uh, here's, here's the way I want you to think about making disciples. Um, <clears throat> conversion is spelled correctly. I just took a screenshot before I corrected that. I just want to make that... Uh, make that known. But um, the process of making disciples begins with evangelism and continues through discipleship. It's kind of this ongoing process where we share Christ to conversion and then we grow as Christians after conversion. All of us, no follower of Christ can become a follower of Christ without first somebody sharing the gospel. Some format, whether it's someone one-to-one, some a medium in which you heard the gospel. We become a believer. And then once you become a believer, you grow in Christ. But part of growing in Christ means helping others follow Christ, learning at least how to communicate the gospel, that these two things go hand in hand. And we think about disciple making and what God's calling us to as a church. There's a lot of things that we do as a church in serving our community and, and seeking to be salt and light in our community. But foundational to our mission is to share the gospel and to, and to grow as disciples. So this process of evangelism and discipleship, um, if, if you could think of a formula like this, nothing is formulaic ultimately, but if you, if you think about it in this way, here's the formula for faithful evangelism and discipleship over the long haul, over your life. Think of it this way, intentional relationships plus God's word plus time equals gospel transformation. Intentional relationships plus God's word plus time equals gospel transformation. This is what God's calling us to, to invest our lives into people, to keep God's word at the center, the message of the gospel that's found in God's word, to give people time to to pursue relationships over the long haul, to, to not just be focused on what can happen now, 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 but to allow God to work over the course of our life and and to through that see 
God bring about gospel transformation? So here's two questions for you here as a church for us to be faithful to our mission. In evangelism, and we've, we've kind of used this theme a few times, and I just want to put it before us again. And, and as you think about evangelism, who's your one? Who's the one person that you're praying for and pursuing, seeking to, to love and serve and to share the gospel? There may be more, but I know a lot of times it can be overwhelming for us to say, I don't, I don't know what this looks like. I, I mean, I, I barely get everything, that, most of what I need to get done anyway. How do I do all this other stuff as a follower of Christ? I'm just asking you to start praying. If you don't have a person that comes to your mind, start praying for that person to come. If you know someone, keep praying for them. Keep pursuing. Keep loving them and pointing them to Christ. No one comes to know Christ apart from someone moving towards them with the gospel. Who are you moving towards with the gospel? Who am I moving towards with the gospel? And then in relation to discipleship, who are you investing in? Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Discipleship ranges from uh, informal to formal. It ranges from really uh, kind of just, hey, how you doing? How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? To let's, let's study this together. Let's dig deep in this together. There's a range uh, that takes place in discipleship. And you may be on this side or you may be on that side. But my question is, who are you investing in? Who are you pursuing to help grow in Christ? We're responsible for one another's growth in the body of Christ. So who are we pursuing and investing in? I love what Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, said. He said, God isn't looking for people of great faith to use, that is. But he's looking for people who are ready to follow him. You don't have to be skilled. You don't have to be um, abounding in faith for God to use you. But you have to be available and ready to follow him. Are you ready? Are you willing to follow him and to allow him to do whatever he desires to do in and through you? There's no better journey you can go on than to participate and join God in his mission. And I, I want to commend a few ways in which we're seeking to do this uh, structurally as a church. We've had residents here at TCC, but we've kind of relaunched and are recruiting towards our residency at TCC. And I just want to commend this to you. One of the things we're praying is that God would allow us to have three or four residents uh, in the coming years uh, with a residency being a one to two year commitment to help people prepare for a lifetime of ministry, either uh, primarily in the context of the local church or in missions, or perhaps disciple-making of some sense and in, in the whole scope of life. Uh, within, our, uh, within our residency, the kind of approach that we take is a desire to, to create an environment where people can experience intentional discipleship, where they can grow as a leader, be developed as a leader, they can gain ministry experience, Theological education in the sense of, uh, of doing their seminary training while they're in uh, some type of residency program, but also in the sense of uh, just a formation, equipping that takes place in the local church, and then experiencing gospel community in the local church and among other residents. And we're trying to do this in a way where we focus in on a few areas where we feel like we can, uh, we can really shepherd people and equip people well. Uh, here at TCC. And those four areas right now are a church planning residency, a college ministry res resident, a kids ministry resident, and then a pastoral 
uh, resident. And if you go to our website under what we do or type in tccannarbor.com residency, you can see these opportunities. This isn't going to be for everyone uh, in the church that's going to do this, but it's an overflow of our commitment to multiply disciples uh, that, that we can train and raise up uh, to serve in the church. Alongside the residency at TCC is what we're doing through Equip, seeking to equip all believers in the church with, with a foundation of God's word, of Christian formation, of sound theology, uh, as well as other topics that help uh, all of us faithfully follow Christ to where he has called us. Um, but this residency piece is also important because the result of making disciples, I believe what the Great Commission ultimately ends, the goal of the Great Commission, the outworking of the Great Commission leads to more local churches. If we share the gospel and make disciples, if we carry out Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we are going to make churches. What does it mean to be a church? It's a group of baptized believers who submit themselves to what Jesus has commanded us under the leadership of, uh, of established leaders and in community with one another. That's the call uh, of, of Matthew 28, Acts 14. If you go look at Acts 14, 21 through 23, this is Paul's pattern. He goes and shares the gospel, makes disciples, starts churches. Here's, here's what I believe God's calling us to do at TCC. I believe God's calling us to begin praying for, equipping, and raising up people at TCC so that we might plant a church by 2025. That God would use us to plant a church by 2025. We believe God's already uh, working in people, perhaps, to be a part of that team at TCC and what that might look like. Raising up leaders at TCC, as well as we're praying through the residency uh, that God would, 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 would bring us a church planning resident that, that we might be able to get behind and send out a church planning team with in 2025. And so over the next few years, what I pray we do is starting in 2023, we've been partnering with church plants in sporadic ways. But starting in 2023, that we would partner with a church plant in an ongoing way. So that in 2024, we not only can continue to part with them, but we can go and support them by serving them on the ground, taking our first mission trip as a church. But also in 2023, our plan and our prayer is to bring on a church planning resident that we would invest in for uh, two years uh, and that we would be building a team around in 2024 and then sending out in 2025 a church planning team either in our region or somewhere in North America that we can send them out to continue the work of the Great Commission. I've seen disciples made who make disciples. I've seen the gospel advanced. And at that point, we would bring on a new church planning resident, either from outside or raising up from within, continually seeking to multiply ourselves and making disciples. And do you know this vision of church planning is actually underneath all the other ministry that we do as a church when we are raising up leaders and teachers and small group leaders and raising up people to lead mission projects and raising up people to serve in kids ministry or in connections, all of these things, it's building the body, but it's also multiplying leaders that God will use to serve the church beyond TCC, either in, in when God calls people elsewhere or when we send them elsewhere so that we can advance the gospel through planting churches. This is what I pray that God allows us to be and to do, not just in the next three years, but that we would do this 10 times over in the next 30 years as a church, that we reach people with the gospel, that we make disciples, and we multiply ourselves by sending people out to the nations and to plant churches everywhere where people need to know Christ. And then finally, and we'll close with this, verse 20 ends with our mission being fueled by the promise of Jesus' presence. I'll invite the band to come up with this. 
here in these final, this final verse, when you think about the enormity of the task of making disciples, the call to, to make disciples of all nations, uh, this process of evangelism and discipleship, this ongoing work, it can be overwhelming to think about how we're going to do that, how we're going to carry that out. It's grounded in Jesus' authority, but here we have the comfort and the hope of this promise that I'm with you, Jesus says, until the end. What a gracious promise. Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. I love how one translation says, says it. It says this way, I am with you each and every day until the end of the age. You know, the promise of Jesus' presence is there for us at all times. But I can't help but think about this promise coming on the heels of the Great Commission. I need to be reminded of this myself sometimes. Do you know that we experience this promise best when we're engaged in the work? You know, it's awesome to have this promise. Jesus is with me. But then if we just sat on the couch and we never acted on the mission, we wouldn't know the sweetness of Jesus' presence encouraging and comforting us when it's difficult. His presence being what guides us when we're unsure of what we should do. It's the promise of his presence intends for us to be engaged in the work. And in many ways, you could say it this way, that the Great Commission is an invitation to experience Jesus' presence as we join him on mission. The Great Commission is Jesus saying, join me in the work. And when you join me, there you'll find me. He not only has given us all we needed, but he's given us himself. And when I think about what God's calling us to do, I think about how big it is and uh, the work that it takes and the, the money that it takes and the time that it takes. It can be discouraging sometimes when the fruit doesn't come in the, in the way that you want or in the timing that you want. As a church plan, it can be discouraging when, you, when you're excited and you get started and you get slapped in the face with a global pandemic and you're not quite sure what to do. It can, it can be difficult sometimes to know, are we headed in the right direction? Are we pursuing the right things? But underneath it, we have the promise of his presence. His presence that comforts us, his presence that guides us, and his presence that empowers us to do his work, the work of his mission. And so that's, that's my prayer for us as we think about God's invitation for us as a church plant here at Treasuring Christ. As, as his church, to join him in his mission is to, is to find him in his presence. If you want to experience God, join him in his work. If you don't know Christ, the invitation that Jesus gave in, in Mark 8 is the invitation he gives this morning. Follow me. Turn from your own way and trust in him. And to the believers here at TCC, to those wanting to join in the work that God is doing here at TCC, our desire and our prayer is that God would allow us to be a church that carries out our mission in an overflow of worship, confident in the authority of Jesus, committed to making disciples, and assured of his presence with us until the end of the age. Let's pray.